This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show today, Ellie Mistal talks about America in Revolt. Protests against police violence have been met with more police violence, and Democratic mayors in deep blue cities have failed to stop their police forces from engaging in racist violence. Also later in the show, we have our weekly segment on Virus Time TV, news you can use on KPFK. Today, Ella Taylor talks about the Criterion Channel, which has taken down its paywall for a series of films by black filmmakers. But first... The great thing about the protests of the past month is not just that they've been so massive, so sustained, so diverse, so inspiring. The best thing is that they are not about Donald Trump. That's what Dahlia Lithwick says. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate, and she hosts the podcast Amicus. Last time we spoke here, it was about the legal challenges to Trump declaring a national state of emergency to respond to what he called an invasion at the southern border. Dahlia, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. Okay, these protests are not about Trump. What would you say they are about and why? Why is that a great thing? Well, because I think that Trump was always the symptom of the fundamental problem and not the problem itself. And I think that as long as we held him out to be in and of himself, everything that needed to change in America, we were eliding the real issues. And the real issues, in my view, go back centuries and they have to do with systemic racial injustice, with systemic gender, profound distortions about gender, you know, economic inequality, all of the things that in some sense created Donald Trump, but are not about Donald Trump. And so for me, you know, I, I was the person for the last three and a half years saying, why aren't people on the streets? Why aren't people on the streets? You know, he's putting children in cages and, you know, he's, he's doing sweet side grifts with his properties and why don't people care? And I really had to reckon with the fact that I was wrong and that in some sense, if you think Trump is the problem, you're taking him seriously and he's not serious, but the, injustices that we are now out on the streets protesting are America laid bare. And that is serious, but it's Trump is sort of adjacent to those problems. Okay. I agree completely. Trump is the symptom of our problems, not the cause. But you also say, quote, Trump doesn't matter, close quote. Isn't that going a little too far? I, I think that... I'm trying to respond to the thousand people a day who tell me, I'm sure they're the same people who tell you, ignore him, ignore him, right? Why are you amplifying his tweets? Why is there a photo of him, you know, on your social media? Ignore him. And you can't ignore him. He's the commander in chief. He has the codes, right, to uh, uh, the nuclear arsenal. You don't get to ignore him. And I think what I was trying to say is, let's make him the size that he is in reality. And the size that he is, is a kind of cartoonish 
laughable aberration that we are stuck with, contend with him on that ground, not on the ground that he is some, you know, oracular prophet, some important and, and signifying character. He's a silly character. And I think he's a silly character that reflects back on us how silly we are. I think that is something to take seriously, our own silliness and our own shallowness and our own attention deficit (laughs) need for fame. (laughs) But I think we have to make him the size that he is. And so you're right. When I I say he's tiny, I guess I'm being rhetorical. But but I want to believe he is tiny and that we are big. And that's what we should be focusing on. Yeah, you have in your piece at Slate, why bother protesting a reality show when reality itself is a daily nightmare? That's pretty great. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I really feel like I'm one of the many, many people who has to keep saying, like it or lump it, we have to pay attention to him. But I, I like the idea that I finally kind of got to in that piece, that paying attention to him doesn't mean that he's important. On your most recent Amicus podcast, you talked with Vanita Gupta, who had been head of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department in the Obama years. She said the Obama Justice Department investigated, I think it was 25 police departments for systematic misconduct out of something like 16,000 in the United States. I mean, William Barr is terrible. I don't think he's investigated one, but 25 doesn't seem to be enough either. I think her point was actually really important. Her point is that the notion of holding the police to account that that could just turn into this Pandora's box of every single police department in the country being under a consent decree, every single police department being, you know, under judicial scrutiny. That's just a fallacy that even in, on her watch under Eric Holder, uh, it is the, the bar is so high to launch one of these pattern and practice investigations to get to the point where there is an actual consent decree. And I think what she wanted to say is the idea today that they only did 20 whatever invest such investigations uh, seems like a lot because as she said in the sessions bar uh, uh, time uh, as attorneys general, there's been one. 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 But the point isn't that 20 is a lot. The point is that even if there should have been thousands, and I would submit what we now know about what happened to George Floyd, what we knew about Eric Garner, what we are now seeing video evidence of every day, uh, suggests that 20 is a really low number, really low, and that it's very, very hard to bring these cases, to bring these investigations, to get a process in place that holds anyone to account and that we shouldn't assume that the existence of those investigations means witch hunts for every bad cop. It's just, it's a super, super, super hard thing to effectuate. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I think that's what she was saying. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're so right that Trump is really not the problem here. Um, While Obama 
was president. Eric Garner was killed by the police in New York City. You know, the famous ones, Michael Brown in Ferguson, that was under Obama. Philando Castile in St. Paul, that was under Obama. That's the one that got to me the most because I'm from St. Paul. Philando Castile and I went to the same high school, oh, St. Paul Central. That was in the Obama years. But, but you also remind us that long before the advent of the Trump presidency, Chief Justice John Roberts and his colleagues declared that America was, quote, over its racism problem. Remind us what they were talking about and what they did about it. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was looking at the Voting Rights Act, which had been passed with massive bilateral support. Uh, time and time again, it was reauthorized in the Congress. And the Voting Rights Act to be as shorthanded as possible, essentially said that those states that had a history of discriminating on the basis of race uh, in voting practices needed when they put into effect new voting laws, they needed to get preclearance. They needed to have that system looked at. Um, and that went a long way to over decades and decades and decades to remediating horrible voting practices during Jim Crow. And everyone agreed that it was working. Uh, in fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously in her dissent in Shelby County in that case said, doing away with this preclearance provision is like putting away uh, your umbrella uh, and saying it's not raining anymore. And it was such a powerful tool that voting rights advocates had in their arsenal to figure out when states were deliberately uh, messing with the franchise on the basis of race. And all you need to do is look at the Georgia primary, right? That was what we just saw, people standing in line for hours and hours, overwhelmingly in minority precincts, overwhelmingly in big cities that tend to vote for Democrats. And this is, precincts close all over the country after Shelby County uh, in minority precincts. This is not a, a tricky causal link to make. And John Roberts is in many, many ways devoted his career long before he came to the federal bench, uh, but even uh, working uh, in the Justice Department, he has long devoted his career to this very fanciful notion that there's no racism in America anymore. And that was the Shelby County decision. His feeling was uh, good, it worked, fantastic. Let's put the umbrella away. And what we've seen is massive, massive voter suppression in a lot of those same jurisdictions. By the way, some of those laws went into effect within days of Shelby County coming down uh, in Texas and other jurisdictions. And so I, I think that in a weird way, John Roberts' notion of colorblindness, that I don't see race, there can't be racism. We're all over it, right? And he famously writes in a different case, uh, a busing case, he famously writes, the way to get over race is to get over race. And it sounds, I mean, A, it's a tautology, but it sounds really good, right? We all should just stop thinking uh, about invidious racial discrimination. And, and now we live in that America where John Roberts has stopped thinking about it. It doesn't mean that we've gotten over race. I think the events of the last few weeks really highlight in a deep, deep way that we are so not over race that you can pretend it away. And John Roberts uh, really is masterful at pretending it away. 
but we're still living in many, many ways with the vestiges of the original sin of how race has been thought about and constructed and litigated and legislated for centuries. I noticed in the paper today that Mitch McConnell used that term, America's original sin, in referring to the history of slavery and racism in the United States. I think that's something new for Mitch McConnell. Uh, Mitch McConnell's suddenly facing a competitive election. <laughs> he is very worried. Mitch McConnell has devoted the weeks of Black Lives Matter resurgent on the street and the weeks before that of mass unemployment because of, of COVID to doing as close to nothing as he could to pushing through more judges, including an unqualified 38-year-old for the DC circuit. I think Mitch McConnell, one hopes that Mitch McConnell at some point in all of this is going to take a good long look in the mirror and ask what he helped to enable in this time, what he could have done in terms of bailing out people who are struggling and what he could have done in this exact moment, thinking about deeply racialized policing practices uh, was nothing. Uh, so with all due respect, I, I really, really hope that Mitch McConnell has a long retirement in which to think about uh, the original sins. Well, the Democrats in Congress are on the move right now uh, they've proposed a big bill to reform the police in America. Lots, lots of stuff in it. They want to make it easier to sue police officers for misconduct in civil court, make it easier to prosecute bad cops for criminal behavior. They want to ban the chokehold, require body cams, and they want to give the Justice Department Civil Rights Division subpoena power to investigate local police departments. And the bill would create a national database disclosing the names of officers who have a pattern of abuse. All that sounds good. What do you think is the most important things on that list? I, probably all of that. Uh, I think that, look, we're having this amazing conversation, this defund the police conversation. And yeah. yet again, we're having it about nomenclature, which is not, I think, the most useful component of, right? Everybody's like, I wish they'd called it, you know, pink petunia instead of like, it's such a silly side fight about what we call it. And I think that what it's raising, and this is something that Vanita talked about, so I think eloquently on, on Amicus this week, is a question about we can't keep treating violent racialized policing as a, a problem of a few bad apples. And that that story that the police are by and large a benevolent, benevolent uh, force that exists to bring peace and order uh, to all aspects of our lives is just false. And it's particularly false when it comes to minority communities. And I think that at the heart of this fight, there is a question about defunding the police doesn't mean, you know, we pull all the cops off the beat and, right, grow grow flowers. It means that we massively, massively reorganize how we spend money and rededicate the proposition that public funds go to education and healthcare and other things that we have subordinated to 
police power. And so I think that, you know, on the merits, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of the things you've described. On the merits, it's clear qualified immunity and uh, lack of transparency have kept those quote unquote bad apples, <laughs> you know, moving from police force to police force. And, and that's why you get claims that people have 17, 18, 19 instances, such as the one uh, that's finally taped. I think that's all essential. And I don't want to diminish the value of anything that increases transparency and increases uh, accountability. But I think I would probably side with people like Vanita, who is hardly a radical, who say that foundationally what needs to change is the way we think about policing and funding the police and not, you know, it, it goes to over-incarceration and over-criminalization and three strikes and a decades-long project in this country to put everybody in jail, which has profited nobody except the for-profit prison industry. But I think in a deep way, it requires edging away from claims that there are one or two bad apples on every police force and edging into a deep, deep soul-searching conversation about what we fund and what we value and why. And I think that conversation is, if it happens under the rubric of defund the police, I say more power to it. I don't know that we can get there, but I do think that I am seeing this as a transformational moment in terms of public attention to the questions that go beyond simply accountability for a few bad apples and really ask why we have militarized police officers, you know, dressed for war and driving tanks down the streets. I think those questions are as integral and essential as questions about accountability. So the problem is not Donald Trump. The the most fundamental problem is not police misconduct. As you said, it all it goes much deeper than that. We are seeing how much more deep it goes. The protests are now against the real problems in America, the historical power of white supremacy. The challenge is not just to Donald Trump, but to the system that made him possible and made him successful. Does that mean things are going to get better now, do you think? You know, I've reflected on that a lot in the week since I wrote that article. And one of the things that's really been heartening to me, this is going to sound so corny, I'm going to say it. But I think that what's really heartening is that this is largely a leaderless movement. That, you know, Joe Biden is is sort of circling somewhere. And I don't in any way want to diminish uh, the force of what he's trying to do. But I don't think this is about Joe Biden any more than it's about Donald Trump. I, I sort of started this conversation with you by saying this is about us. I really think that what is powerful to me is the slightly narcotized reality show life we had been living that got us a Donald Trump is the thing that I think is being dislodged. And again, I've spent the last few years thinking, oh my God, we all jump from Robert Mueller is gonna save us to Sally Yates is gonna save us. And then Senate Democrats during the impeachment are gonna say, I mean, we are fall in love 
it's like bad chiclet, right? With like one hero after another that's going to fix this for us. And in some sense, that too, I think, is a symptom of the problem. And so what I'm really moved and chuffed by in this particular moment is, of course, we're seeing extraordinary Black leadership, and it's so important, and it is so important that minority voices are being listened to and amplified. But I just think this is, in some sense, the possibility for change really requires kind of weird street politics of the sort I think the framers protected, right, in the, in the First Amendment, the idea that what you do is you get on the streets and you talk to each other and you shout at each other and you work through your stuff. And the exact opposite of street politics, leaderless movements and growing and learning and listening is Donald Trump. And so I guess in a strange way, even though I, I frankly am terrified, and I think I said in the piece, you know, I think we should in no way minimize Donald Trump's capacity to make everything terrible. And he is, he has, you know, Lafayette Square is terrible. And what Bill Barr has done at the Justice Department is unconscionable. But I think that the leaderlessness of this and the almost complete absence of passing the buck and so hoping someone else is going to fix it is really, I think, ennobling and long overdue and gives me at least some hope that we're not looking to the next hero to fix it. We have given up on that fantasy. It was always a bit childish. I think, I think it's time. What's great about this moment is it's not about Donald Trump. It's about us. Dahlia Lithwick wrote about why this time is different for Slate. She also hosts the terrific podcast, Amicus. Dahlia, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Take good care. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. In almost all our big cities, we've seen massive protests against racist police violence after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a cop. All of these cities have liberal Democratic mayors in huge Democratic majorities. And yet, in almost every city, the police response to protests over police violence has been more police violence. For comment, we turn to Eli Mistal. He's the nation's justice correspondent, and he writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. He's also an Alfred Nobler Fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC. Eli Mistal, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Well, when someone is being violent, you call the police. But who do you call when the police are the ones being violent? You take up this question in your new piece at The Nation. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a vexing problem, to say the least. In this moment, when people are protesting brutality, for the police to respond with more brutality is just insane. What we need in this moment, or for the people who are arguably in control of the police, 
the mayors, the police commissioners to stand up and tell the police to stand down. And that is kind of the opposite of what's happening right now. What we're seeing is, is a lack of local control over the police forces. And it's one of the reasons why um, these protests are sparking so much property destruction, fires and, and violence and whatever. It's a reaction to the posture that the police have taken. Weak civilian control of police power has always been a problem, but that problem, you say, has been accelerated recently. How did that happen? It's, it's part of this long kind of trajectory of the militarization of police. I'm a Generation X guy, right? So if you kind of roll back the clock to 1980, like the police were kind of scary, right? They had like billy clubs and they were like on a moped and like William Shatner was like around, like, you know, like they, they, they had some kind, they had power. But with the militarization that we've seen accelerated really starting in the 90s and kind of zooming ahead from that, we now have true paramilitary forces on our streets. These police are armed with uh, counterinsurgency weaponry. They, they drive around in armored personnel carriers. Um, they're outfitted in, you know, body armor as if they're preparing to go to Fallujah. And it's, and it's an entirely different kind of level of force that they are able to apply to the peaceful protests, the slightly rowdy protests. Like, it doesn't matter. They're, they're able to come over the top in such a way that there is an argument you know, that violence begets more violence, that that kind of posture is itself an inciting reason for some of the violence. And, I, and, and it's an important context here. People have to understand that black people who are out here protesting now, who are protesting the death of George Floyd and um, other, you know, instances of police brutality, it's not like we don't have TV. It's not like we didn't just see for the past month and a half white people generally lose their minds over quarantine issues, over being asked to wear a mask, over social distancing, right? And we saw literally armed white people with assault rifles yelling within an inch of the police who were dressed in normal uniforms, who were not armed, who were calm, who did not, you know, uh, shoot tear gas or rubber bullets at these protesters, we saw how they treated white people. And so when you show up to your protest, when you show up in your town and the police are outfitted in riot gear, it, it immediately tells you that you are not going to get the same treatment that the white people got, which is why you were out there protesting in the first place, right? So, so it's really, <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> You write at The Nation, most mayors in this country fail to control their police, but Bill de Blasio in New York is unique. Please explain. This guy, this guy. I feel personally betrayed by Bill de Blasio. I know it's weird to, to, to personalize him that way, but it is how I feel. Because this man explicitly, after... Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor of New York City for three terms, um, had really awful policing policies, um, instituted a stop and frisk pro program uh, that was eventually deemed unconstitutional. Mike Bloomberg, three terms, coming on the heels of Rudolph Giuliani for two terms, who was one of the most 
aggressive pro-police mayors in the history of the country to come off of five consecutive terms of over-policing. Bill de Blasio comes out here in his campaign for mayor and explicitly promises that he will not be like, like Bloomberg, like Giuliani. Explicitly promises that he will rein in the police. Um, Bill de Blasio happens to be married to a black woman, so black woman, so his children um, are dark skinned. His children are black. Bill de Blasio used his black son in campaign ads to emphasize the point that he understood what racial profiling and stop and frisk and over policing did to black lives. For him to go from there to a guy who, during the protests last weekend, tried to excuse the cops who ran their cars into crowds of unarmed people. The delta from what he said he'd be to what he is, is, is horrifying. It's, and again, I, I take it personally. I, I view it as a personal betrayal of what he promised to be. For de Blasio, the turning point seems to have come when he appeared at that funeral for a New York City cop who had been shot and killed, and the cops in the audience turned their backs on him. That was 2014. Why was that so traumatic for him? I don't know. It was. (laughs) I think we clearly see that his posture towards the police changed significantly after they disrespected him. Why that kind of hurt him so um, is beyond me. Like, what did he think was going to happen? If you, you, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a meta argument, but like, if the police like you, if you're a mayor of a big city and the police like you, that probably means you're doing something wrong. That probably means that you aren't doing enough to control their excesses. So I don't, I don't see how he could have possibly thought that he could campaign as being a reformer of the police actually make police reforms and have them like him. So I don't see why he was surprised, right? But it clearly, I mean, John, you're so right. It clearly was a moment where his entire kind of posture um, changed. And I would say uh, significantly for the worse. You know, there's there's massive popular support in America for prosecuting killer cops like the one who murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis I just saw a YouGov uh, poll of uh, 5,600 people shortly before Minnesota officials announced that that cop, Derek Chauvin, had been arrested. This survey found that almost four in five Americans believed he should be arrested, and that included 68% of Republicans. But there's one huge, powerful political force on the other side, and that, of course, is the police unions. The political power of the police unions is really our our biggest problem uh, here, and that that power has to be broken, it seems to me. Uh, Right now, it's against the law in a lot of places, including California, for us to find out the names of the cops who have been disciplined by their own departments for misconduct. Uh, Those laws are are enforced because the police unions lobbied for them. So it seems to me police unions should be limited to advocating for pay and benefits and working conditions like like other people's unions. Yeah, I, it's look, it's a it's it's always a difficult conversation about the police unions um for me because I'm a liberal, which means I like unions. I think they're good. <laughs> I think we should have stronger ones, right? Um and obviously the police union is is kind of a 
an outlier in terms of a union that has maintained its power and grown in power over time. And the way that I kind of look at it is that instead of worrying too much about what the police union does, which I think, I mean, they do terrible things and they advocate for policies that I strongly disagree with and I think hurt American citizens, especially black and brown American citizens. But instead of kind of focusing on, on what they do, I tend to focus on why they are so powerful. And the reason why they are so powerful is because people, predominantly white people, listen to them and vote the way that they tell, that the police unions kind of want them to. Like, they would not be politically powerful if they didn't bring with them a whole lot of votes. And the votes that they bring with them are not just from cops. It's from, you know, average citizens who feel like being aligned with the police is the right thing to do for the safety in their community, for law and order, for all these kinds of things. So part of what I try to do is to advocate and educate people for why they shouldn't vote for the candidate who has the support of the police union. At least on the left and the, and the, and the center left, the police union endorsement should be viewed as, with as much toxicity as like an NRA endorsement. Right? You wouldn't see a center-left person vote for a guy because they got a perfect rating from the NRA. Why would you vote for a guy that gets a perfect rating from the police union because, it's, because they're advocating for the same kind of violence on our streets? And we also need to talk about the city budgets. Um, in L.A., where we record our show, the police get something like 53% of the total city budget. I imagine it's the same in New York City and other places. And now with the coronavirus economic crisis, there are going to be massive budget cuts in all our big cities. What's going to happen to the police budgets now? In the same way that Republicans in federal government, like never cut defense spending, how the defense spending is this kind of, you know, sacred cow that can never be, the fat which can never be trimmed. City governments do the same thing with police budgets. And and it's largely because of police unions. It's largely because of that connection that we just, and again, as you pointed out, I think earlier, in mostly liberal cities, mostly democratic mayors, they still are afraid of angering the police union. So they leave that budget sacrosanct. Um, But it is cutting the budget that is our, to me, our our clearest, our most direct way to reform. Talking about the militarization of police, like where do you think they get the money to buy armored personnel carriers and riot gear and body armor? That's from the city budget. That's my tax dollars that goes to funding the weapons that will be used against me if I peacefully protest. It is those budgets that need to be attacked and politicians, people have to vote for politicians who promise to attack those budgets. That's, that's, that's one of the big, my big takeaways from all of this that we're seeing over the past week and a half. We have to stop electing politicians who promise to control the police because that clearly doesn't happen. We have to start electing politicians who promise to disarm the police. That's a whole different kind of campaign. I've heard that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or the rights of the people to peaceably assemble to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Is this true? Yeah, I think you missed the part where it said white people to peaceably assemble. <laughs> because I don't think that that I'm, I'm, doesn't appear that that law applies to anybody else. Look, I, I, don't, I don't know where I don't know where the government, and this comes directly from President Trump, 
I don't know why we've decided that it is okay for National Guardsmen, police officers, or what have you, to tear gas peaceful protesters. I don't know where they've decided that it's okay to shoot rubber bullets at members of the press. I mean, in some cities, it looks like members of the press are being targeted. I don't know why. I mean, if you're a cop and you see a person holding a news camera, I don't know why you shoot at that person. I don't know how you think that helps you. Obviously, what Republicans have wrought in this country is a sense of freedom for me, but not for thee. And I don't, I kind of don't know how we got here and I don't exactly know how to stop it, but it is where we are. Ellie Mistal, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Ellie. John, thank you so much. Stay safe out there. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. This is news you can use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. We can't go to the movie theaters, but we can watch stuff at home. And so for some advice, we turn again to Ella Taylor, of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hello, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, it's very hot, but other than that, just dandy. Well, today we want to talk about the Criterion Channel. Yes, and the Criterion Collection, which are an excellent DVD and streaming service, A, for cinephiles who want to see their favorite terrific films again, and B, for for people who would like to uh, have a broader sense of cinema history than just the usual, you know, Netflix and Amazon films, bless their little souls. (laughs) um, Criterion has two wings to it. They're linked. Uh, One is the Criterion Collection, which puts together uh, remastered or restored beautiful DVDs of um, classic and modern films. The other is the more recent Criterion Channel, which has replaced their previous um, streaming channel, Filmstruck. Let me interrupt to say that the, the DVD sets that they release are not only gorgeously restored, they have wonderful essays written by some of our best writers, and I think you're one of them. Uh, yes, I mean, I wouldn't lay claim to be one of our best writers, but uh, I, they've given me the opportunity to write about films like the Russian, the, the eight-hour Russian War and Peace and Kelly Richard's wonderful uh, Certain Women. But there are others, uh, notably um, Bilge Ibiri, who writes for Vulture, has a, marvelous, has a few marvelous essays here, so does Godfrey Cheshire. And I want to single out also uh, Farron smith Namey, who... Uh, is a marvelous critic who specializes in classic Hollywood and, and, and musicals, romances, and so on. She does has terrific commentary on the channel um, and has written some essays. And Sheila O'Malley, a really terrific 
film critic for Film Comment, who also has a collection of, she's always worth reading, and she writes about a huge range of films. She's extremely prolific. So just, and Michael Stregau also, who writes about uh, uh, classic movies. So what should we watch tonight? Well, tonight, actually, I'm glad you mentioned tonight, um, because this is only for a short time. Uh, they've taken the paywall down for obvious reasons uh, for a series of essential films by black filmmakers, uh-huh. um, like Charles Burnett. film they have here is My Brother's Wedding, but if you want to see his utterly terrific Smithsonian residing movie, Killer of Sheep, you can go to Milestone Film and Video, another terrific um, erudite video service and uh, To Sleep With Anger also. Cheryl Dunier, whose film The Watermelon Woman uh, came out some years ago, a really terrific Shirley Clark film called Portrait of Jason, which is about the gay hustler. Uh, that's a wonderful film, films by uh, Oscar Michaud from the 20s and 30s. And uh, Billy Woodbury, who made Bless Their Little Hearts, has a, a film there too. So that's only for a short while. So if you want to catch those, you need to get going. <laughs> I'm not okay. finishes. I've also picked out, I mean, there are 2,117 films altogether. <laughs> okay. uh, and we have only a few minutes. So I've picked out a few of my favorites. Um, one of which I watched last night, which is Louis Mull's debut feature, the only film noir he ever made. And it's called, it was made in 1958. It's called elevator to the gallows and it's about um a couple uh, she, she's married to, to a, a rich uh, arms dealer and uh, her lover uh, works for her husband yeah she's played by the, the one of the greatest cinematic faces uh, jean moreau uh, who is seen uh, doing a slinky walk through nocturnal Paris while she waits for her lover, who has become, after, after doing the deed and killing her husband, has become stuck in an elevator, which may sound like black comedy, but uh, is actually quite terrifying. Um, and uh, the film is about one night uh, with a subplot um, that involves an, an unconnected young couple who make off with the lover's car. The thing about it is, first of all, it has an astonishingly good score by Miles Davis, which he recorded in one take while watching wow. the film. And it's just beautiful. It's very Paris and cool and, and uh, jazzy. Um, the acting is wonderful. Moreau is always uh, spectacular. And you just have to look at her and it's worth the price of admission. <laughs> uh, but also the great Lino Ventura, um, who played the resistance fighter in another great film that comes in and out of um, Criterion Army of Shadows, which I also highly recommend. Um, but really, the film is is a, is about um, is a very jaundiced view of France after World War II and and its uh, colonial exploit, exploits over overseas. Which brings me to Battle of Algiers, which you can also find on the Criterion Channel. I also love the big Soviet version of War and Peace, which is almost eight hours long, was made in 1966 by Sergei Bondarchuk. Very Soviet, 
sometimes cheesy, but has some of the, the, the greatest battle scenes uh, in cinema history. And I recommend uh, wading through that. You know, when I think of the uh, Criterion Collection on the Criterion Channel, I think of like, suddenly it's 1965 and I'm back in college yeah. and going to the campus film series, The 400 Blows, Bicycle Thieves, Belle de Jour, and of course, Breathless. But I, they have a lot of other films I don't know much about, which some, many of which are not from the 60s. No, there are some, uh, some contemporary films, quite a lot of them, actually. Uh, one of them is Clouds of Sils Maria, which is a beautiful film by Olivier Assayas with Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart as a famous actress and her assistant. Um, there's not really that much of a plot, but the acting is terrific. And Kristen Stewart who, as you know, is, uh, has a kind of uh, androgynous glamour that is inescapable, also stars in Kelly Richard's Certain Women as a dowdy college adjunct <laughs> and is very good there too. Um, that's a marvellous uh, film. It's based on, on crises of three different women, which I highly recommend. If you're into vintage Hollywood, I would recommend... Uh, two Betty Davis movies. One is Now Voyager, made by Irving Rapper, in which she turns from a, a dowdy spinster into a, a glamorous cosmopolitan overnight. And the other one is the great All About Eve, in which uh, she plays um, an, another kind of actress altogether. I want to finish by talking about um, an Iranian filmmaker named Jafar Panahi, uh, who has a film, Three Faces, which I have not yet seen. It's on my watch list. Um, he is famous for making a film. About, he was banned from filmmaking by the Iranian uh, authorities and also placed under house arrest. And so he made a film called This Is Not A Film, which is about him sketching out the screenplay um, as a storyboard on his living room floor. That film was smuggled into Cannes. It was, it was shot on an iPhone by his um, cinematographer, and then it was smuggled into the Cannes Film Festival inside a cake. <laughs> and I hope they brushed it off before they screened it. <laughs> uh, and then won an award at, at Cannes as well. He's a marvelous filmmaker, and uh, this is not a film. Actually, uh, you can find it all over the place. And, of course... Uh, Really, finally, um, the great film Bicycle Thieves, which you mentioned, the quintessential Italian neorealist on the side of the workers, tragic film in many ways, beautifully shot. I showed it to um, a group of very young students at Art Centre last week, and they seemed to love it. So it's definitely a keeper. If you haven't seen it yet, it should definitely should. And if you have, you should watch it again, as I did. Ella Taylor with Virus Time TV, the Criterion Channel, and the Criterion Collection. News you can use, a regular feature of this program. Thank you, Ella. You're very welcome, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. 
Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.